Open your Bible, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 50. Final chapter in the book of Genesis, and uh, maybe you've been tracking with us since January um, in this series that we are in called Looking to Jesus. Uh, If you have not been tracking with us, or maybe you haven't been around for much of this series, that's okay. You can jump right in with us this weekend, but uh, we're taking all of 2018 uh, to go through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, start to finish, uh, to see that for all of the stories in the Bible, for all of the people and the places uh, that we read of and the lives that are lived out on the pages of the Bible, there's really only one big overarching story within the Bible, and it's the story of redemption. It's the story of God's love for you and for me through his only son, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And uh, one of the key moments that highlights that reality in all of the Old Testament is what takes place in Genesis chapter 50. So let's have our Bibles open to this passage and follow along with me as I read, beginning Genesis 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. One of the greatest mysteries of our faith is how God can take an event in history and more specifically how God can take a circumstance in any single one of our lives that appears to be so fiercely evil and use that event to bring about something good. How is it that one fiercely evil empire could exterminate six million Jewish people from the face of the earth during World War II and yet God can use that to bring about something good? How is it that One person could walk into a high school in Florida and mercilessly gun down 17 people and wound 14 others, and yet God can still use that to bring about something good. How is it that you and I can be the victims of abuse or accidents or disease that is so fiercely evil and sometimes suffer great consequences that last a long time because of that, and yet God can still use that to bring about something good? And furthermore, what are we supposed to say? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think when other people see those very same events, those very same circumstances, and stand up and fiercely declare that there is no possible way that God could be in something like that? Because if we were to be fiercely transparent, there's a lot of us, maybe even all of us to some degree or another, who wonder the very same thing. If God is so good and so loving, then why am I going through this unspeakable tragedy? If God is so good and so loving, then why am I going through this unexplainable change? If God is so good and so loving, then why am I suffering through this dreadful disease? 
I mean, it's usually not too difficult for us to see God in the good things within our life and even be somewhat quick to give him the credit for those things. But, but let's be honest. When was the last time you heard somebody say, by the goodness and the grace of God, I had this horrible accident and I'll never be able to walk again? When was the last time you heard somebody say something like, because, because God is good, he took me through a long and painful season of my life during which I lost just about everything and I'll never be able to get it back? We don't hear it. We don't say it. And sometimes maybe we don't even feel it. Maybe on some level we know that we should, but we don't. And if we're not careful, we can quickly get to the point where we do not believe that God is working simply because we do not see how God is working. And maybe even more difficult than that, how do we forgive the people who have done these evil things against us? All of that is wrapped up in Genesis chapter 50. But the story in chapter 50 actually begins all the way back in chapter 37. So I want to encourage you to take your Bible and flip back with me to chapter 37. And as we set some context this morning, I I want you to be able to see some things in your Bible right in front of you for yourself as we make our way through the story and the life of Joseph. Of all the people that we meet in the book of Genesis, Joseph gets the most airtime. More than Abraham, more than Isaac, even more than his own father, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons who then become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Turns out, though, that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and Jacob loved Joseph so much that he gave him this coat of many colors. That phrase, coat of many colors, could actually be better translated to be a coat of long sleeves. In ancient culture, a coat like this showed that a person had a certain social status that set them apart from everybody else and freed them from having to do all of the hard manual labor that everybody else had to do. The thing is, within a family, it was most often one of the older sons who would get this coat of long sleeves, but Joseph happens to be one of the younger sons within this family. So you can imagine that when he gets this coat, that doesn't exactly go over too well with all of his brothers. Then one day, Joseph has this really strange series of dreams. Notice chapter 37 and verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So they already hate Joseph because he's got this fancy coat, and he's daddy's favorite, and he doesn't have to do the work that the rest of them have to do. They hate the guy already, but now they hate him even more. Verse 6, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. So Joseph has this dream where where his sheaf rises up and towers above all of the other sheaves and all of the smaller ones bow down to his. It's all an indication that there's coming a day when Joseph's brothers will all bow down to him. Later, he has a second dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bow down to him again. And it's an indication of the same thing, that there's coming a day when his father and his mother and all of his 11 brothers are going to bow down to him. 
Some more time passes, and Joseph's brothers are out tending the sheep and doing all the work that they have to do. Well, in the meantime, Joseph is back home. He's lounging at the pool in his fancy schmancy coat. And Jacob, Joseph's father, sends Joseph to go and check on all of his brothers to make sure that they're okay. When his brothers see Joseph coming, they quickly put together this plan to kill Joseph and throw him in a pit and then go back to Jacob, who, remember, Jacob loves Joseph the most, and tell Jacob that an animal has eaten Joseph alive. In the end, the brothers decide not to kill Joseph, but when he gets there, they still rip off his coat and then throw him in a pit. A little while later, they're still stewing over their hatred of Joseph when they see a caravan of Ishmaelites make their way close to them, and they think to themselves, well, maybe we can make a little bit of money off this. So they pull Joseph out of the pit, and they sell him to this caravan of Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and the Ishmaelites then take Joseph to Egypt. From there, the brothers take Joseph's coat, they dip it in animal's blood to make it look like Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, and then they take the coat back to their father Jacob, who immediately concludes that Joseph must now be dead, and Joseph grieves, or Jacob rather, grieves Joseph's death for a very long time. That section comes to an end at the end of chapter 37 and verse 36, where it says this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So now, fast forward to chapter 39. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, this is a really important moment in the life and story of Joseph because this is the first time that we see the Bible use this phrase to describe his life where it says, the Lord was with Joseph. So that's a really important phrase. You may want to mark that in your Bible or underline it, highlight it, make a note of it. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. After Joseph now has been around Potiphar's house for a little while, it turns out that Potiphar's wife finds Joseph attractive and starts making inappropriate advances toward him. Chapter 39, verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, so Joseph refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife, and he says to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So notice the implication here. Joseph's primary concern is not just what Potiphar will think of him. His primary concern is how if he commits this sin, what an act of wickedness it would be against God. So time goes on. Potiphar's wife does not give up so easily. She keeps coming after Joseph in this inappropriate way. And then one day she grabs Joseph's shirt and Joseph instantly runs away. So she's left standing there now with Joseph's shirt in her hand. And then she makes up this horrible lie that Joseph tried to take advantage of her but took off when she cried out. When Potiphar gets home and hears his wife explain all of this, he gets so angry that he finds Joseph and throws him in prison. Now, let this be a lesson to all of us. Flee the moment of temptation. Flee in the moment of temptation, regardless of what people will say about you. Just like Joseph did here, regardless of the lies that may be told about you because you flee, regardless of the consequences that may come to you because you flee, 
Flee in the moment of temptation immediately, instantly. Get out of there as fast as you possibly can because that act of wickedness against God will never be worth the momentary pleasure of the sin. So now, Joseph is in prison. At first glance, it looks like his life has hit rock bottom, but look at chapter 39, verse 21. This is another key verse in this narrative. Chapter 39, verse 21. Here's this phrase again. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Here it is again. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So the Lord is with Joseph at every point along the way. The Lord is with Joseph. And at this point, in our North American Christian mindset, we start to think to ourselves, okay, so if the Lord is with Joseph, this must be the point then where everything now begins to turn around. Everything begins to get better. Why? Because the Lord is with Joseph. So if the Lord's with Joseph, then things must get better, right? Except they don't. Everyone forgets about Joseph in prison for two years. Like, can you imagine that? Two years. Everybody completely forgets that Joseph is there in prison until one day he is called by the Pharaoh to interpret some dreams that Pharaoh had. Joseph, being a dreamer himself, has some experience in this area. And so Pharaoh begins to tell his dreams to Joseph. And he says to him, I had this dream about seven cows and they were attractive and plump. Pharaoh's words, not mine. And so he says these cows were attractive and plump and these cows are coming up out of the Nile River. And then he says there were seven more cows, but those cows were ugly and thin. And they stood beside the first seven cows and then those ugly and thin cows ended up eating the plump and attractive cows. And it's like, dude, what did you eat before you went to bed? Like, don't ever eat that again. And then Pharaoh, after all of that, he says, well, wait just a minute. I, when I woke up from that dream, I fell back asleep, and then I had another dream. And he says, I had a dream of seven ears of grain, and they were plump and good. And then there were another seven ears of grain, and they were thin and blown over by the wind. And, and so Pharaoh now looks at Joseph, and he says, what does all of this mean? And Joseph looks back at him and tells Pharaoh that God will send seven years of feast for the people. In the dream, that was the fat cows and the plump grain. But those seven years of feast will be followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph says, use the seven years of feast to get ready for the seven years of famine. So Pharaoh sees the wisdom in all of that. He's so relieved that finally somebody can come to him and tell him exactly what all of these dreams mean. And he's so thankful for it that he makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. So just imagine this. Joseph takes one step out of prison... And his very next step is to sit in the second most powerful seat probably in the entire world at that particular time. Fast forward again, and the people are in the middle of the years of famine, and Egypt is the only place that has food. So Jacob, again, after all of this time, Jacob now sends his sons to Egypt to get food. Turns out that Joseph recognizes his brothers in the crowd. He's able to pick them out of the crowd, but they don't recognize him. And so Joseph puts them through a number of tests and then finally reveals himself to them. And look at what he says in chapter 45 and verse 5. It's chapter 45, verse 5. This is another key verse in this narrative, so you may want to make note of this. Chapter 45, verse 5. Joseph says to his brothers, and now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So let's pause here just for a second and and let's make sure that we understand exactly what Joseph is saying. Joseph is saying that God's plan from the very beginning was to get Joseph to that exact spot in Egypt. Okay, three times in these few verses he says this. The end of verse 5, God sent me before you. Start of verse 7, God sent me before you. Start of verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. So God's design was to bring Pharaoh, or sorry, to bring Joseph to this exact place within his life. But not only was God in control of getting him there, but furthermore, God was in control of how Joseph got there. See, God's not responsible for the evil actions. God's not responsible for the wickedness. All of that stays on Joseph's brothers. But even in the midst of the wickedness, God never left Joseph. God never left Joseph when he was alone in the pit. Never left him when he was sold by his brothers. He never left Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house or when he was forgotten in prison. He never left Joseph when Joseph was living the life that he never asked to live. And somehow, God now is committed to bringing something good, a greater good, out of that evil. And this is so often where it cuts really deep for us. Because for many Christians, maybe even for many of us across the room right now, we would have little trouble acknowledging that God brings you to the good places within your life. You believe that his promises are true and that he never leaves you and that he has a plan for you and it's really not that hard for us to see how God could bring us to those good places within our life. But the problem is that it's not always so easy for us to see how God takes us to the bad places in our life, to the hard places in our life. I mean, how are you supposed to look at the cancer, at the abuse, at the betrayal, the pain, the words, the accident, the birth defect, the miscarriage, the blatant evil that has been done against you and believe that somewhere in that God has something good. Which is why By the time we get to Genesis 50, we need to see that this passage in verses 15 through 21 is about so much more than just how to forgive people who hurt you. It is about that, but it's about so much more than that. That this passage is really about so much more than this misunderstood or misapplied theology that keeps asking the question, why is it that bad things keep happening to good people? Like This whole story here of Joseph's life is not simply about Joseph. This story is about the providence of God. And so the next question that we need to ask then is, what exactly is the providence of God? Well, if you're taking notes, you can write down this definition from author and Bible teacher uh, Jerry Bridges. We've used this definition before, and it's super helpful. Jerry Bridges says this, that God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. So God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory 
and for the good of his people. So notice here the layers to this definition. First, God is constantly caring for his people. He's never turning away. He's always watching over. He's always protecting. He's always providing. He's always leading. Not only that, but God has absolute rule over all of his creation. Like nothing escapes his attention or his ability to control. All things within creation bow down to the one who created them. Furthermore, he does this for his own glory. In other words, God is working the plan that he has determined to happen from before the beginning of time. And as that plan happens, his power and his provision and his glory is being revealed within that plan. And then finally, he does this for the good of his people. Now notice this, because this is really, really important for us to see. In his plan, God never separates his desire for his glory from his desire for the good of his people. So God's desire for his glory and God's desire for the good of his people are two parallel tracks that never separate. So no matter the catastrophe or the victory, God is working in every single circumstance of your life to simultaneously bring about his glory and your good. So we look at that and and we've seen God's providence all over the life of Joseph. Just think how many times the story tells us the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Why? Because God is bringing about his plan for his glory and for the good of Joseph. And he does the same thing for every single one of us. He brings about his plan to fruition in your life for his glory and for your good. And it's this providence that is now leading Joseph's brothers to seek his forgiveness. So how does God's providence impact our ability then to forgive other people? In fact, let's take this question one step further and let's make it a lot more personal. If God is constantly caring for you, and if God is constantly ruling over all of human history and over all of the affairs of your life, then why must you forgive other people? Let me say that again. If God is constantly caring for you, and if God is constantly ruling over all of human history and over all of the affairs of your life to bring about his glory and and your good within your life, then why must you forgive other people? That's the question of Genesis 50. So what I want to do in the time that we have left is give you four implications of God's providence and my forgiveness. Four things that we need to see. Here's number one. God's providence means that I can release those who have wronged me. I can release those who have wronged me. Verse 15, Jacob has died and Joseph's brothers are afraid that Joseph was simply waiting for Jacob to die so that he could take revenge out on his brothers and his dad wouldn't be there to see it. Which is why they come now to Joseph with this message from their father saying, verse 17, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Then skip down to verse 19. Notice this. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. We see the same thing. Skip down again to verse 21. Joseph says again, So do not fear. 
Now, what's one of the first things that happens inside of us when someone sins against us? Like, the thing with a question like that is we could probably go around the room right now and there'd be a different answer for everybody in this room and there would probably be multiple answers to that question, right? Like we could label it, what's happening inside of you and you've got 1A, 1B, and 1C and there's all of these things that are going on inside of us as we try to answer that question. But when someone sins against us, one of the things that happens is that our natural sinful tendency is to want to hold that thing over their head. We start thinking to ourselves, I mean, there's no way that I am going to let them forget what they did to me. The pain, the suffering, the abuse, the words, the betrayal. Like, I am not going to let them forget what they did to me because I can't forget what they did to me. And maybe at some point in the future, I'm going to pull that thing out of the bag and I'm going to hold it in front of them just to remind them of how much they've hurt me. Loved ones, if we are not careful, this is where our flesh takes over and can absolutely destroy us. I mean, last week we saw in the life of Jacob how God will walk us through a valley of humility in order to wrestle the pride out of us. And and this right here, unforgiveness, our refusal to forgive people who sin against us, this may be one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life. Because when unforgiveness grows in our hearts, when we have this refusal to forgive other people, it's then that the self-righteousness and the self-sufficiency and the self-confidence and the self-love and the self-pity and the self-admiration and and a whole host of other self-sins, they all begin to rise to the surface and we want to justify ourselves. Which is why then, when it comes to this matter of forgiveness, we need Jesus to live his life through us. See, one of my concerns is that we preach and teach discipleship in such a way that it only sounds like we need to live our lives for Jesus. Like you need to worship him and walk with him and work for him and there are certain things that you need to do and certain things you need to say and certain places you need to be at certain times and all of these things. And and while there's layers of that that are true, my concern is that we forget that if you are going to live your life for Jesus, then first and foremost, you need Jesus to live his life through you. And perhaps one of the most glaring areas that we need this to be true is in forgiving other people who have sinned against us. I mean, think about this. Your desire to not forgive other people for the ways that they have wronged you will not go away simply because you keep telling it to. Right? I mean, don't we know that to be true? And so, it has to be the work of God that humbles us and leaves us broken and needy and desperate for the life of Jesus to be lived through us. Your ability to release other people for the ways that they have wronged you In fact, your entire ability to live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ and his disciple does not rest on you living your life with Jesus' help. It rests entirely on Jesus living his life through you. I mean, this is what helps us look at the people who have wronged us and say, because Jesus has released me from the fear of pain for my sin against him, which is infinitely greater. I then am not going to hold your sin over you. We got to see this. 
That it's, it's not just that we're ignoring the sin that has happened against us. What we're doing is we're saying, I am trusting this event, I am trusting this circumstance, I am trusting where I have been sinned against and wronged, I am trusting this to the providence of God. So implication number one, God's providence means that I can release those who have wronged me, which leads then to implication number two. God's providence means that I can leave revenge to God. I can leave revenge to God. Verse 19, Joseph looks to his brothers and he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And you got to see here that nobody's denying how horrific this entire episode has been. Nobody's looking past the pure evil and the wickedness of Joseph's brothers. I mean, notice how many times they mention this in the passage. Verse 15, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all of the evil, there it is, that we did to him. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression, there it is, of your brothers and and their sin, there it is again, because they did evil, there it is again, to you. And now, please forgive the transgression, there it is again, of the servants of the God of your father. Skip down to verse 20. Joseph says to them, as for you, you meant evil, there it is again, against me. So nobody's looking past what's been done here. Joseph remembers very well the sins that have been committed against him. I mean, do we really think that after all of this time has passed and everything that's happened, that Joseph just somehow mysteriously has forgotten everything that his brothers did to him? Like, do we really think that the Apostle Paul, after all of the times that he was whipped and beaten and tortured, had just somehow mysteriously forgotten all of those things that everybody had done against him? I mean, no way. There's no way that they can possibly forget that. That's why the whole idea of forgive and forget is not biblical. It's not. Hear that because... Some of you are living in the bondage of trying to forget things that have been done to you. But then you wake up every morning and you think about those things almost every single day and your life is consumed with shame and guilt because you can't figure out how to forgive and forget. It sounds good and it sounds right, but it also sounds impossible Do we need to forgive? Well, I hope that much is clear by now. Yes, we need to forgive. Jesus says, forgive your brother when he sins against you, not simply seven times, but forgive him 70 times seven. There's no limit to the amount of forgiveness that we extend to our brother when he sins against us. But does the Bible command us to forget all of the ways that we have been sinned against? All of the ways that we've been violated? Victimized? No. And we can't forget it. By God's grace, and over time, there are some things that we do forget. But even with the passage of time, there are some things that we will never forget. And that's why a proper understanding of God's providence is so important because what we cannot forget, the gospel helps us forgive. Now, I want to be really, really clear and very careful with that. 
I want to be clear because I want you to hear that the gospel helps us forgive everything, whether we remember it or not. But there are some things that happen to us that we remember so vividly, it's almost like it happened just yesterday. If we're not careful, those things can have a certain kind of control over us. I mean, think about it for a minute. How easy would it have been at this particular point for Joseph to step in and get revenge on his brothers? It would have been extremely easy. I mean, he has the authority as the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, Egypt, maybe the entire world at this point. He could have taken out revenge on his brothers in a dozen different ways by lunch. But think about this. When we're sinned against, and particularly when we're sinned against in a grievous way, what instantly starts to stir within us? We want revenge. Like we want to get back. We want to settle the score. We want to make things even. But just consider this. If Joseph gets revenge on his brothers right now, after God has safely brought Joseph through every trial and through every tribulation, if Joseph gets revenge now, then he undercuts God's plan for everything that's happening right now. He undercuts God's plan for everything that has brought him to that particular place. And any time that you and I take matters into our own hands and we try to get revenge, whether we do that actively or passively, when we try to get revenge on those who have wronged us, we do the very same thing. We undercut God's plan for everything that has happened, for everything that God has done to sovereignly bring us to this particular place within our life. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, who knew pretty well what it meant to suffer at the hands of wicked men and then still leave the revenge to God. Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You've got to see this. God has a plan for your suffering. God has a purpose in the wickedness that has been perpetrated against you. Which leads then to implication number three. God's providence means that I can believe that God is working in ways that I cannot see. One of the classic statements in all of the Bible on the providence of God, right here in this passage, verse 20. This is Joseph now speaking to his brothers. Verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So notice that word in verse 20, the word meant. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, Joseph is saying all those years ago, way back in chapter 37, when you sold me into slavery, your plan was to bring evil on me. But God has a different plan, and, and God's plan went way back before your plan, and God's plan overrules your plan because God is constantly caring for his people, and God is constantly ruling over all of his creation. Like For all of the injustice and the evil that may have been done against you, are you not glad that God's plan overrules everyone else's plan? Like, and this is why we need to see how important this one word is. What Joseph is not saying here is that God somehow found a way to take a really bad situation and pull a little bit of good out of it. He's saying that God knew that this would happen. He's saying that God knew already that the free moral actions of men in their wickedness 
would be the vehicle that would drive forward the greater purpose of God. And when you see it like that, you begin to see that the story of Joseph is actually the story of Jesus. Just like Joseph, Jesus was the favored son who was rejected by his brothers. Just like Joseph, Jesus was sold for money and stripped of his robe and delivered over to wicked men. Jesus, just like Joseph, was falsely accused and yet faithful in temptation. But greatest of all, Jesus, just like Joseph, embraces God's plan, even though it brings great physical pain to him. And because of that, he ends up saving his rebellious brothers from death when they finally realize who he truly is. It's the story of the gospel. See, when Jesus died on the cross in our place, the greatest single act of evil and wickedness was perpetrated against the single greatest person to ever live, God himself in the flesh. And yet, for as evil as the cross appeared to be, it was most certainly the plan of God to bring about our redemption for all of eternity. And why could that happen? That could happen only because of the providence of God. It happens because God is constantly caring for his people and God is constantly ruling over his creation. Nothing escapes his attention in the affairs of human history or in the details of your life. So, Acts 2.23 Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in the providence of God, Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins. But the story doesn't end there. Acts 2.24, the very next verse says this, But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I mean, that's good news. Like, see this. Jesus rose from the dead because death could not hold him. That's the providence of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is always at work, and he's always doing things that often we cannot see, but it's always for his glory and for our good. God has done this in his providence. He has given Jesus to die in our place so that our forgiveness could be guaranteed by him so that we then could forgive other people who have wronged us. God, see this. So consider this. It was 22 years of his life before any of these purposes became clear to Joseph. 22 years. So over those 22 years, he's thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt, a slave to Potiphar, character maligned, thrown in prison, forgotten for two years, becomes prime minister of Egypt. 22 years pass before Joseph sees all of his brothers again and all of these roads now meet in the middle. The thing is, Joseph had no guarantee that he would ever know God's purpose in his suffering, but he was content to know that God was at work even if he could not see it. And you and I have no guarantee that we will ever know God's purposes in our suffering. The question is this. Is God's providence big enough and glorious enough to you that you can be fully content to live the rest of your life and never know why you suffered like you did. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. 
when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. When we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. When we cannot see where this is going, we can know that God does. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God's providence means that I can release those who have wronged me. I can leave revenge to God. I can believe that God is working in ways that I cannot see. And finally, number four, God's providence means that I can extend grace to anyone. Verse 21, Joseph looks to his brothers and their families and he says, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So do you notice this? After everything is said and done, Joseph does not seem to remember any of what has happened to him with bitterness or anger in his heart. And I would suggest to you that the reason that that is so is not because Joseph found some mysterious way to forget everything that had been done against him. It's because his view of God's providence is so big and so glorious that any possibility of bitterness and resentment is being washed away in the tide of God's grace. Jeff is going to sing this final song over us today. As our response to God, it's time for us to examine our hearts and see where we need to make a change. Maybe you've been living in the shame and regret of things that have been done to you in the past. For all this time that has gone by, you haven't been able to get past it. Today is the day that you need to surrender to God's providence and believe that somehow God is working in ways that you simply cannot see. Maybe you've held on to the bitterness or resentment of past hurts and slowly, maybe without you even realizing it, It's been eating away at your soul. It's been leading you to dark places and today is the day that the Lord is coming to you and he is drawing you out of that. Perhaps you're having a hard time trusting that God has a purpose in the injustice that you've suffered. Today is the day that you need to surrender that pain of your past to the God of your future. It could be that you've been holding something over someone else for a long time. Maybe you've known it's been wrong all along. But you've been secretly plotting for some time now to tip the scales back in your favor. Today's the day that you need to take that and you need to leave that with God so that instead of holding a grudge, you can extend grace. It could even be that before you do any of that, the first thing that you need to do is to come before God and surrender your life to him through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your own sins. So I'm inviting you, do the hard work with God. 
Strive with God in prayer and beg him for mercy and he will come to you with so much grace and with so much compassion. Regardless of what it is or how long it's been going on, everyone's need is the same. We don't need just to live our life for Jesus. We need Jesus to live his life through us or none of this happens. So as Jeff sings this final song over us, this is gonna be a quiet space for you to reach out to God. You can do that just right in the chair where you're sitting right now. What matters today is that we do this. It's that we seek God to redeem what has been lost. It's time to make a change. So as Jeff sings this over us, seek your good and faithful friend in Jesus Christ.